only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Hi there, how are you on what is admittedly a sunny but slightly toasty, I believe it's a Wednesday. The days all start to run together for me. But it is a Wednesday on Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson here as well. Sam Rumsa is on the big board as we continue to get set for a doubleheader weekend. IndyCar and as well NASCAR out at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike reality is this and i'm curious if it's the same for you and i don't mean this as a disrespect in any way shape or form to the promotion of the event but i have to keep reminding myself that this is a weekend where the oval is not being used and that everything is on the road course (laughs) i'll be honest i don't know if it's because i'm a traditionalist or i'm just old and forgetful but i have to keep like literally put a post-it note on my shirt to remind myself of that I think it's because we're both traditionalists, and and when we think of this weekend, it's Brickyard 400 weekend, right? So that means it's on the oval, and so I, I think that's just the case that when I think of Brickyard weekend, I think of you know Jeff Gordon winning on the oval or Dale Earnhardt winning on the oval, and it's it's going to take a little getting used to the new the new format, but I think it's gonna it's gonna lend itself to some interesting racing. I mean, I think the racing we saw, as you mentioned last night, the racing we saw last year with the Xfinity race with uh, with Chase Briscoe and some of the guys last year really lended itself to some interesting racing, and I think that's what we're going to see. But I agree. I mean, as a as a traditionalist, and it seems weird when we're discussing traditionalists, right? Because it, there was such a you know a little bit of a backlash at the beginning when the Brickyard 400 came because the traditionalists said, you know, hey, we don't want another race on the Oval. You know, the, the only the Indianapolis 500 should take place on the Oval, and so there was that traditionalist discussion. And now we're talking about, well, wait a minute. The Brickyard 400 is, you know, always on the oval. And now we're talking about the fact that that's gone. So it's kind of come around full circle, I think, this whole discussion. When you think about the early years, yesterday, by the way, folks, and thanks to those that tuned in or listened to us on a podcast form, last night we talked about the early years and just the massive impact of the Brickyard 400 in its infancy. And, you know, when it first came on, I hate to use the term Mike novelty, because it's not a novelty act, but the reality is that you have, you know, a new factor, right? It was the new shiny object, and and I think for stock car fans, the idea of being able to run at one of the real cathedrals of speed was a huge compliment to them. It's something they were excited about, and so you had the cycle through of everybody that wanted to be able to experience that. Um, and then a number of factors that we'll talk about tonight came into play, but when you think about the early years – of the brickyard what comes to mind for you um for me the the biggest thing that comes to mind in the first couple years is the fact that there were so many people who tried to make the first race and the fact that really it propelled jeff gordon to stardom and and then dale earnhardt i i I was talking to uh a guy who's going to be our guest later tonight last night about this you know and dale earnhardt said you know i was the first man to win the brickyard 
400 because of the fact that, you know, Jeff Gordon, he always used to tease Dale. Dale used to tease Jeff about being basically a kid, you know, and, and, uh, you know, toasting him with the milk and all these different things uh, that, you know, Dale, Dale and Jeff had so much fun together with that. But I think of the, the early winners and, and it seemed like, Really, it was a race that really a lot of the times, obviously, the cream rose to the top. You know, I mean, Jeff was really at the beginning of his ascension to stardom. And then you had Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jarrett, you know, Bobby Labonte, Bill Elliott. You know, you had you had some really top stars win this race. Occasionally, you had guys that were surprise winners. I mean, Ricky Rudd was a surprise winner. But, you know, Tony Stewart, I mean, Jimmy Johnson, these are these are big time stars winning this race. You didn't have you know, Derek Copes or those type of guys winning this race. You know, you had some of them that were key players in different areas to your point, whether it be in qualifying or that, that factored in over the course of the race, but didn't necessarily end up winning the race. We talked about yesterday, the fact that one of the great things about IMS is, you know, for the most part, there are no fluke winners. I mean, you know, most people that win a race there, you say, well, yeah, they, you know, they were, Awfully strong that day or awfully strong in their career. For whatever reason, one of the things that jumps out at me, and I'm curious, I might be the only person that remembers this, Mike. I don't remember the year because the years all kind of run together for me. But I remember one year, I'm going to guess that it was 02. But Jimmy Spencer and Kurt Busch got into a tangle in turn number three. And as they came around, Kurt Busch walked halfway seemingly in my mind it probably was not that at all but came onto the track as I came around to the caution and did the old like smack of the fanny fanny in the air to Jimmy Spencer now do you I don't remember the year I'm going to say 02 I don't know why I even remember that Mike am I the only person that remembers that no that was actually that was actually a big a big deal it was at the time yeah for sure yeah they actually had a pretty big feud going at the time but yeah I, I do recall the the uh him expressing the displeasure and that was 2002 you're right and uh i think bush said something like uh jimmy spencer was an old has-been or something like that i think that's right that was part of the feud if you remember right something like you're you're an old i think he said something like you're an old has-been or you were a never were to begin with or something like that and and that that was part of the the kind of war of words between jimmy spencer and and uh and uh, don't forget in the first year we had the interesting situation with the two brothers. We had Jeff Bodine and Brett Bodine. We had Brett spinning Jeff out of the lead. And then you think, okay, well, you know, that's unfortunate. That type of thing happens. And then, and then Jeff drops the big bomb in the middle, you know, uh, you know, Hey, we're brothers, but we haven't spoken in months and, and we don't talk anymore. And then there was this big family like dispute between the two. And he, he basically aired all the dirty laundry, like publicly, which was a little bit, surprising you know you thought it was just a racing accident and then jeff's like yeah he's my brother and i love him but you know he spun me out and we don't speak anymore and we have family problems between us and it was just kind of a very surprising statement that he made and so yeah i mean there's been some some definitely some interesting moments like that over the years how many brother combinations can you name i'm putting you on the spot mike that have run the brickyard there, oh man obviously the burtons uh, right the uh, yeah, the Burtons, the Bodines. Ward and Jeff Burton. Uh, the Labonis. Correct, with Bobby Labonte being a winner. Terry Labonte, I always think of in a Kellogg's car. 
Oh yeah, Terry Labonte. The I always liked it because it had that big, uh, you know, rooster on the hood. You know, <laughs> it was the, cool. Yeah. And what's funny sure. is my uncles used to call it the chicken car. It's actually not a chicken. <laughs> but well, wait know, a minute. Chicken car. Now hold on. Chicken car. Our, if it's a rooster, roosters and hens are all chickens, right? Well, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. Isn't that yeah, the Seinfeld line? The way. rooster goes with the hen, but they're all chickens. I think that's yeah, how it I goes. Suppose. Yeah. There, you there go. has to be. Uh, people are probably. Well, we, did we say the Bush brothers? Uh, we did not yet say the Bush brothers, but yeah, the, there would be the Bush brothers. There would be, um, I'm trying to think of any other co- brother combinations. It's not I as can't. easy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think there would be any. Don't you love brothers. when I throw questions out on the air before we've prepped ahead of time about it? Yeah, exactly. Okay, what about this? In the early years, one of the big storylines, and in the first year, there were only two of them. Here's a good trivia question for you. Do you mind when I give you trivia live on the air and put you on the spot? Uh, it's okay because it usually makes me look completely ridiculous, but that's all right. We all no. have a little bit of fun with okay. it. Okay. So. There are 15 drivers, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, 15 drivers in the history of the NASCAR event at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that for years, of course, was the Brickyard 400 or variation thereof. 15 drivers who did a stock car cup race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway who all have one category that they fall into. There were only two of them that did it in year number one. What is the category? That also drove at some point in the Indianapolis 500? That is correct. And the first year was A.J. Foyt and Danny Sullivan. I believe they were the only two in the first year. That's, but that's correct. Here's my question. If you were to list for people all 15 names, and I will read you the names, okay? I actually can – I'm pretty sure I can do this one. All right, go ahead. Donald, Donald and I used to do this in my previous career. We would occasionally would sit there in the office and we would try to name the people who had did – you know, had done the 400 and the 500. Okay. So 15 I of think them. I, go ahead. I think I can actually do this one probably. Go ahead. Uh, Foyt. That's one. Sullivan. That is two. Jeff Brabham. That's three. Tony Stewart. Four. Hang on. John Andretti. Uh, five, uh, Montoya, six, Jack Villeneuve, seven, Sam Hornish, eight, Scott Pruitt, ninth, uh, Robbie Gordon, 10, uh, Jason Leffler, 11, Larry Foyt, 12, uh, Carpentier. Ooh, so there might be 16. I did not have Carpentier listed. Yeah, Carpentier is one. Okay. Uh, Almondinger. The the list I was looking at is probably old. Uh, Almondinger, Almondinger would, be, would absolutely be one, right? Yeah, Almondinger would be one. Okay, so there's uh, you're missing Dan- one. Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch, yep. Danica. Ooh. Okay. Uh, uh, so there's more than 15, just for an FYI. Um, Yaley. Yep. Max Pappas. Correct. I think you've now named all of them that I And then I think the one I didn't do is, uh, did I say Hornish? You did say Hornish. So here's my question. Which on that list would most trip people up? Uh, Probably Jack Villeneuve. I would agree with that. Now, see, it would not trip me up because you know me. I'm a gigantic Jack Villeneuve fanboy. You and I have that in common. I'm a huge Jack Villeneuve fanboy. Yeah, you and I have that in common. Larry Foyt might trip up some people. I don't know how many people would recall that, you know, certainly the one that 
the one that it tended to trip up uh, us in the office is we always wanted to put Christian Fittipaldi on the list. Because if you remember, Christian Fittipaldi blew, uh, drove Cup for Richard Petty. But he didn't make the race in the Brickyard 400. So he, while he did drive for Richard Petty, he did not make the race, so he would not make the this particular list. But Patrick he did Car- drive. Patrick he did drive at IMS. Would trip people up. Oh yeah, for sure. But he drove. Uh, yeah, Carpentier drove the Red Bull um, NASCAR for the Na- Red Bull NASCAR team. But yeah, Christian Fittipaldi drove at IMS, but didn't make the race. He failed to qualify. Um. So that that was the early years, and then. As we talked about, and I'd mentioned, you know, what what I think we're going to do for the rest of the week, by the way, just so everybody knows, tomorrow we're going to pay tribute to uh, one of the great champions of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway um, and Pardelli Jones. We're going to talk about him tomorrow. Uh, on Friday, um, we will talk about some of the four-time winners because obviously we now have that with Elio Castroneves. We have not had a chance to really expand upon Elio winning fourth, uh, his fourth. He's going to have a bronze brick that he's going to get this week. And Donald will join us for both of those shows. So we will have Donald with us for the following two days. But when we come back, talking about a driver, or excuse me, uh, a guy who was around for some of the early years and the transitional years, when you look at the television coverage of the Brickyard 400, originally it was an ABC property from 94 until 2000. Then NBC TNT took it over from 2001 until 2006 before ESPN got their run for seven years, and then back to NBC and NBCSN starting in 2015. But one of the guys who was working on those broadcasts and saw it perhaps during that transition just leading into and was not a part of but certainly knows plenty about the tire debacle, the tire debacle, I should say. Uh, Matt Yoakum was one of those who was working the television broadcast. He served many years in the pits, and we're going to talk to Matt when we come back here on Beyond the Bricks. Yoke on the call. NBC and TNT had the broadcast for the Brickyard 400 from 2001 to 2006. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson here as well. This is Beyond the Bricks. And by the way, we did, and it was Mike, not myself, who came up with this, did miss three brother combinations. So we certainly want to clear that up. Those three, Mike, that we missed were? Uh, the Truex brothers, Martin and Ryan. We forgot the Wallace brothers and somehow forgot the Walter brothers. I, I don't know how <laughs> I managed to do only, that. Only two of the three were like the most famous names, right? Yeah, yeah hey, exactly. So, Like I said, we're old, right? Yeah, I, you know, look, NASCAR trivia, I'm not going to always win at that one. So, uh, but yeah, we, we forgot those three. Uh, joining us now is somebody who worked plenty of broadcasts, as we talked about for the Brickyard 400 over the years, and also has one of the most expansive and impressive helmet collections i'm fairly certain when it comes to fans or enthusiasts of motorsports talking about matt yokum who joins us how are you matt 
Oh, I'm doing great. But the first question I have, are you guys drinking tonight before the show, kind of like a pregame? Because I cannot believe you would not remember the Waltrips. I mean, they have like a lasting memory, Mike, in your brain of comedy and uh, a little bit of mix of everything. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, that was a whiff, man. You know, look. Look, Matt, Matt, you know, you know me, you and I are good friends and you know, me. I'm, I'm under a little bit of stress the last couple of weeks. And so I'm, I'm not myself right now. I'm not, usually I'm a little better on the trivia than I've been the last couple of weeks. And, and so I, I definitely whiffed on that one. All right. Well, I will, I will say this then. Who do you consider probably the greatest driver never to win the Indianapolis 500 looking at his results uh, over the period that he competed at the Speedway? Well, I always say the guy who, in my opinion, the guy who is the greatest driver not to win is Michael Andretti. That's my opinion, though. Well, I would go with Ted Horn. Uh, Ted Horn or Rex uh, Well, Mays. Ted Horn's your – well, One of those Ted, three, right? Ted Horn is your, yeah, Ted Horn's your guy, Matt. I mean, I know Ted Horn's your – you're definitely your guy. You're a big Ted Horn guy, and you're, you're, you've got a little bit of a nice Ted Horn collection as well. Well, you know, and that's why you guys are the show to listen to, because you have all the facts, not only about the guests, but of the people that have left such an impact in the world of auto racing. And, and that's why you guys are the, the fan favorites that you are. <laughs> well, now, now we're going to ask if you're drinking, Matt. Uh, <laughs> hey, Matt, I want to ask you about one of the things that I was really intrigued to talk to you about was we talked about this yesterday. I think that you, and if you disagree with me on this, you know, absolutely feel free. I, I think that you were part of the broadcast, right? Maybe so, more so on the tail end of when you were doing the broadcast, but right when you could kind of start to feel, but not necessarily see yet, the transition of the enthusiasm for the event itself. And that's not to say, I think there's always the enthusiasm and the respect for the venue. But the excitement about being at IMS was such a big deal for for Cup and for its fans in the early years that then that kind of settled down to then where people started to question, like, you know, is this the best racing we can get on this track with these corners and these cars? Did, did you sense that there was maybe a slow, subtle transitional period there? think that I really noticed a, a, a real slow transition. The thing that stuck out in my mind, and it was a fluky deal, and it's not like anybody says, oh, you know, we're going to go ahead and, and not make a good product or whatever. It was just one of those instances where, you know, they had a bad situation, and that was the, the, um, the Brickyard 400 where they had the tire issues. And I remember I was doing direct TV hot pass with Larry McReynolds, and we were in commercial, and I said, well, Larry Mack, you better get in who's leading uh, when we come back, where our guy is, because in about another uh, five laps after that, I said, we're going to be back uh, with cars on pit road and, and our driver. I, I think we might have had smoke that day. I don't remember. And so he actually used that line on the air. But see, the thing is, I feel like that that was just one of those bad days that – you know, maybe it's one of those things where I think perception becomes reality. And a lot of times people are like, well, you know, I don't know. It wasn't a good, you know, that was a bad deal, this and that. Well, and it really didn't need to be because it was just a fluky deal. But I felt like that stigma from that day 
uh, carried on somewhat. I think if you ask any competitor, driver, crew member, guy on top of the pit box, um, you know, the Brickyard, the Speedway, it has such a special feeling. And whether you're there and there's no racing going on, I mean, you can feel the ghost of the past, and it's a special place. And that's why everybody loves to kiss the bricks. And if you look at the guys whose last career wins came, uh, you know, at the Brickyard through the years, uh, you know, look at what Casey Kane did. I mean, that 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 was the – the crown jewel win that he really wanted uh, for his career. But to like to answer your question, I don't think you can really pinpoint it. Um, to me, it was always exciting to broadcast from there, but that was the event that stuck out in my mind. That, that was like, Oh boy, we've gone down a different road. Matt, we talked a little bit, Jake brought up a, a really good point last night about different like perfect storms happening. So the, the first Brickyard 400 happened at the exact same time IndyCar was splitting apart. So it was a perfect storm of, of popularity for the beginning of the Brickyard 400. I think one of the perfect storms for the the end, if you will, of, of the, the Brickyard 400s, you know, huge popularity is is obviously the tire issue you talked about but at the same time we also had chicagoland getting a race at that almost that same time kentucky speedway getting a race at that same time kansas is getting a, a race so all of a sudden there were a lot of midwest options for for races at the same time of, of the tire debacle how much do you think that played into the same thing i think it was everything if you look at when Kentucky opened up, and all of a sudden, the Bristol Spring Race, which always had a great fan following, they started having uh, crowd number issues. And then you started looking at the different tracks. You know, you look at how uh, Xfinity would go to mid-Ohio. You mentioned Chicago. You mentioned Iowa. Uh, you know, Kentucky, and all of a sudden, the sport went from a predominantly southern sport, and they wanted the growth, and they wanted to, to move the product to areas that didn't have it, and to basically uh, give those fans what they were missing, and then all of a sudden, and we talked about this, uh, you know, Mike, you and I have talked about it, and my friends and I talked about this, you know, about six, seven, eight years ago, all of a sudden, now you can get the map, and you do a big circle and look at how many cup races. It affected Michigan, uh, Indianapolis. You know, now we've got Road um, America, which is a fantastic venue and event. And so then I go back to, you know, maybe it's uh, a point in time where we should have more of an event type of a race, which is what a lot of people are, are starting, you know, like what you saw with uh, the Nashville IndyCar race. Um, you know, Kid Rock, I mean, there were more uh, musicians there performing for the fans throughout the day, but you're seeing that also at the NASCAR races. And I, I look at what Darlington did, going to one event, how that resurrected that facility. Now all of a sudden they wanted to have two. But I think you hit on it. You have too many places that you can go uh, within three hours, and, you know, now fans have bigger options instead of having that routine every year where they go, all right, we got to renew our tickets because that is our weekend in June at Michigan, Father's Day weekend. Well, now they go, well, you know what? If we drive a little farther, you know, we can go to Kentucky or, you know, and I, I think, Mike, that's the, the, the bigger um, 
Uh, I think that was the bigger calamity that, that befell the brickyard. And I, I think anybody will tell you, I mean, even on the road course, you know, those guys run on the road course. I mean, Indy is Indy. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, I spent so many months of May second qualifying weekend in my mom's suite in turn two when she uh, ran the, the Peterson Publishing uh, Corporate Entertainment Program. I mean, Freddie Agabashian coming. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just that place is so special. You know, one of the things, Matt, that I've always wondered about, for and this is good news in you know the line of work you were in but i think also became a challenge i, I want your per, your perspective on this is around 2006 or 7 somewhere in there you know i remember i was doing a morning news radio program at that time and the big conversation being about gas prices and you know the the economic downturn at that period and gas prices were one of the first things to really go up and people were used to spending the summer loading up their RV or, or, or taking a couple of weeks like you talked about and doing a road trip and going to races or sporting events. And as gas prices went up around that time, the cost of a high-def television went way down. And so all of a sudden people realized, wait a minute, I, I can watch a really good broadcast and watch Matt Yoakum and the guys giving me really good information in very clear vision, and my bathroom's 10 feet away and I'm not spending $4 a gallon to fill up my Winnebago. And I think that also has had an impact at that time of changing the fan perspective or the fan planning. You agree with that or disagree? I agree with that at the time because I remember seeing different racetracks, which were always loaded with fans in and outside the facility camping. And then when the gas prices hit, you know, 08, 09, somewhere right around there, you saw people saying, hey, look, I, you know, I can't be spending $5 a gallon to take my RV, which gets, you know, four miles to the gallon at best going downhill, uh, going to a race. But I think if you look at the past, I want to say maybe five years, I've seen the trend where racetracks more and more say, hey, look, I mean, Phoenix and different places, uh, you know, we're, we're sold out or, Hey, we're almost sold out. If you want something, you got to hurry quick. Um, I know at Daytona, uh, I hooked up my fraternity brothers, uh, about five years ago and they continue to go back and they get three Winnebago's up in Tallahassee. They all drive down and, uh, you know, camp out. They get the same spots every time. And you're seeing that repeatability as far as routines go more and more. And I think that's another reason why camping world's involved. Uh, so much in motorsports because that is starting to come back. And I especially think with, with COVID, I know a number of people who went ahead and got a trailer, got an RV, a motor coach, and, you know, they, because they felt safer and they started traveling. And I think you're also seeing those fans coming back to races. And so it, it was something that, that was out of racing's hands but I think you're, you're starting to see that passion of those folks that were always there. They'd always get the same spot. They would always park next to the same guy from Toledo and, and somewhere else. And, uh, you know, they met up with friends. And I think you're seeing that tradition come back. What fraternity, by the way? Uh, Sigma Phi Epsilon. Sigma. Now, that we just call that Sig Ep, right? At IU, that was just Sig Ep. Is that – uh, isn't that that's, right? That's the, that's the same one. Uh, Sig Epsilon, Sigma Phi Epsilon. 
or if uh, you are a competing fraternity for the fraternity of the year, like Alpha Tau Omega, they called us Sigma Phi Hair Salon. Um, <laughs> you know, we we were a bunch of good-looking dudes. I I I, I joke, but uh, but That's you know, pretty strong uh, though. So, actually, to be honest with you, depending on what the evening entailed, I might have actually worn been more likely to wear the Sigma Phi Hair Salon shirt, depending on where I was going. Right. <laughs> Well, we didn't have any shirts. Yeah, that's that's just what people call us because a little bit of jealousy there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, some good times then. And and uh, you know, when I was in the fraternity back in college, nobody was uh, into racing. You know, like what? You know, and they knew where you know I was involved, where I was from. But it's neat now just to see people who've been introduced to it and that passion ignite. And that's why I always say, look, you know, I'm a fan of racing. And whether it's it's NASCAR, whether it's IndyCar, you know, drag racing, short track stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, they said, hey, you know, you know, I, I like the Cowboys or I like this. I'm like, really? Well, I like NASCAR, IndyCar, short track stuff. And then I was stick and ball. And uh, it's neat to see new fans and that passion ignite. I think you're starting to see that more and more. Do you think the road course, you know, look, last year, Matt, Matt Yoakum is our guest, by the way, here on Beyond the Bricks, Jake Quarry, along with. Mike Thompson, as Matt joins us, I thought last year uh, at the Xfinity race when they ran that on the road course as part of the doubleheader with IndyCar, and they got done with that Xfinity race, and I thought to myself, "Well, this is a slam dunk." Now there's no doubt that they're going to, you know, transition the Brickyard into the road course because it was spectacular. I mean, side by side racing. You know, two guys going into a corner, and you didn't think that there was enough room, and they managed to both get through, and it was it was great stuff. Do you think that will reinvigorate the excitement level for this weekend? I think so. I think it's going to take some time. I also think when you look back to the Xfinity and the truck series, one thing that makes those series so exciting is in Cup, there's a lack of mistakes because they are at the top of their game and you have to be mistake-free. And so many guys are nearly mistake-free. The lower levels, you've got a lot more, I don't want to say inexperienced, but you've got less experienced people than maybe you have in the Cup Series. So you'll see mistakes more. And that's what, you know, some of the excitement we saw, you know, people uh, overdriving the corner in the Xfinity race uh, at the Brickyard. And and it created some fun and excitement. So I think that uh, it's going to be a good show. I really do, and I think that if you if you see um, just the excitement on the road courses the Cup Series has had, I always said that you know Sonoma was much like a Bristol, uh, where you turned left and right and you did it on purpose. Uh, whereas you know Bristol, you know you just if you turn right because someone was putting a bumper to you usually. But uh, I think it's going to be exciting, and uh, you know really pretty much kind of keep forging that the history that they've got there. I'll never forget when, you know, Les Richter, who was a family friend, and, and he was telling my mom and I about that they were going to do a secret test, you know, coming up. They were going to load up and, and go to Indy and keep it quiet and this and that. But they were so excited about opening up a new chapter for NASCAR uh, with, uh, you know, being able to go to, to Indy. And being a part of that storied history, now you fast forward to my childhood hero was Roger Penske. And no other person could have had the Speedway end up in their hands with more passion toward that event and will do so much for that racetrack 
uh, in general and in IndyCar series than, than Roger Penske. So I can't wait to see five years from now where the Speedway is uh, and the events that they hold there. Uh, you know, I, I can't wait for, uh, you know, maybe a, a 24 or 12 hour IMSA type of event. So, uh, like I said, I love all of, you know, all of racing and, and, uh, and that's certainly a very special place uh, to my heart. Matt, we, earlier in the uh, segment, we heard you call with about three laps to go, uh, Smoke's 2005 win. And earlier this year, you know, Elio won his fourth 500, and that was one of the loudest, you know, roars of the crowd we've heard in a long time at, at 16th in Georgetown, but probably the loudest since Tony Stewart won his first Brickyard 400 because that was an incredible, incredible reception that Tony got. What do you remember from that day of uh, your friend Tony Stewart winning that Brickyard 400? You know, the neat thing about that event and, you know, his wins there and his drives there, they to me, they, they sort of blend together. And his dad and Tony's turned too sweet, and he was so focused on his dad every time he went through the corner there. But the image that stuck out in my mind even more, yes, you've got the pictures and the celebration and victory lane, but the thing, and climbing the fence too, um, the thing that stuck out in my mind was his longtime motorhome driver, Jeff Gooch Patterson. And here's a kid from Escondido, California, uh, drove a school bus, worked in a cemetery, had just about every job, uh, helped out with some sprint cars, and ended up hooking up with Smoke and became his, still employed by Tony, and became his motorhome driver. I'll never forget, you know, all the crews out there, Smoke's climbing the fence, and Gooch is over leaned up against the wall, sitting on the ground, and he's in tears because that's what it meant to win at that place. And so if it meant that much to Gooch, you know, you can imagine what it meant to Tony. And I remember going to Dick Jordan had a little get-together later that night. And, uh, you know, it was cool to see after everything had worn off and all the press was gone and it was over – and he had, you know, jeans and T-shirt and, you know, Dick's talking and everything else. And it's neat to see the, the words that he talked about, about growing up, you know, in Columbus. And, you know, I think Bob Frady, uh, the Dairy Queen, was his sponsor starting out in go-karts. And to see where he finally, because so many people try to achieve their childhood dream, but, you know, that dream never really matches reality for one reason or another. But reality really surpassed that dream of him growing up and, and finally coming so close in the IndyCar uh, when he ran the IRL, and finally he scored that win. So, you know, that's that's definitely one of those one of those moments for him that uh, you know, Mike. We talk about it so many times, and and drivers will say, you know what? I wish that I would get a script that told me this was my weekend especially on marquee events, because you could soak it up even more every little moment leading up to that event. But you can't because that's what makes you uh, at the top of your game because you're so focused. And uh, I know, you know, that first Brickyard I know is one of those that, you know, he wishes that he could go back and soak up every single moment uh, leading up to it. And I can only imagine what that get-together at Dick Jordan's house would have been like because I, I actually was fortunate enough to go to one party at Dick Jordan's house and Smoke was there. And I don't think I've ever seen him more relaxed than he was at Dick Jordan's house. I, I mean, he just loved it there. 
And I just can imagine what that party would have been like because he was just in his element when he was over at Mr. Jordan's place. Oh, yeah, because he was his people. I mean, Tony, you know, my mom and I joke around about all the time because when we used to do the radio show, if Tony was in town, he would come by my house. He'd show up about 7.55. The intro music would roll about 7.56, 7.57, and he would show up. And if she was up visiting from Florida, he always wanted her to make a drink because, you know, she didn't really drink, you know, but back in the day, I mean – you know, friends with Hal Needham and so many different people. And and that's just the way it was, but she would make him a Jack and Coke. And the first time she did it, I mean, you could see like his face. He's like, Oh my God, that is, you know, so strong. But, uh, you know, he, he was just one of those guys that was a jeans t-shirt flip flops still is. Uh, of course now he's got the flat bill hat. He's going a little West coast with us now that he's got engaged to Leah. Great lady. But, uh, you know he's he's still the same guy, and uh, and and Dick w- was his guy. I mean the short tracks of Indiana, Ohio, you named it the USAC stuff, and and that's where Tony's you know heart really was. You know even though he was winning the biggest uh, of big races and championships, um, he was he was most at home in that type of a venue. Matt, we appreciate um, the time and the perspective tonight. Are you going to be here this weekend? I'm not going to be there this weekend. Uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be watching it on television. But I think back to that very first uh, Brickyard. And I was—I still have my credentials from that event, one of the ones that I've actually kept. And I did a piece on Eddie Wood because back in 1965, his dad and his uncles all crewed for Jimmy Clark when he went on to win. And he sat in his class. He was uh, seven years old. And he sat in his class with a transistor radio, ran the, the cable up the back of his shirt, and had his hand up over his ear like he was leaning up against his hand. And he listened to the, the Indianapolis 500 because back in the, in the South, they would go to school on Memorial Day. And uh, he said when he got there and to be there, he first thing he did, he walked out through Gasoline Alley out onto Pit Road and found the pit stall that they were in that day. And he just sat down and just soaked up that moment and thinking back to all those memories. So it doesn't matter what year it is, you know, whether you're at home watching on television or there in person, uh, that place is really special. It is neat. There's no doubt about it. 2001 to 2006, Matt was on the television broadcast. And of course the enthusiasm for racing and the speedway remains the same today. Matt, we appreciate it. Enjoy watching it. All right. Hey man, thanks. Appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Appreciate it. That's Matt Yoakum again, joining us here on Beyond the Breaks. When we come back, we'll put a bow tie on it, but we'll also briefly take a look back at exactly the tire debacle that he mentioned. We'll do that next on Beyond the Bricks. And again, just if you didn't catch the whole explanation of the situation, this racetrack surface, normally rough on tires anyway, takes a while to rubber in. Normally during Friday and Saturday practice and qualifying, that happens. The race ends up okay. It just hasn't happened this weekend. A combination of new tire, NASCAR's new car, whatever, but right now still struggling with tire issues. This race, to put it politely, it's been a struggle. Back in 2008, that was the ESPN broadcast for the Brickyard 400, the Goodyear tire debacle, as it became known. And, Mike, I recall in that race, I was working the pits for the IMS radio network, and 
you know, literally it was, well, wow, I'm going to keep a, a check here and watch what we call like, you know, down to the, the, the tires cording or getting down to the ribbon, ribbon cord of the tire itself. And after like the fifth time of doing that, uh, of reporting on that, but, and then looking up and thinking we're on lap 40, you know what I mean? It just was, it really did kind of feel like you were taking on water and you just couldn't get ahead of it. And before you know it, you realize like you heard there from Alan, I, it just got too far gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, there was there was nothing you could do to explain it away at that point. There was there was nothing they could do other than keep throwing the competition caution every 10 laps. And then you're not really doing a race anymore at that point. I mean, I guess it was the first stage racing almost because you were racing 10 laps at a time. But it was there's just really nothing more they could do. I do have one question, if you don't mind me asking. Um was Sam going into the acid house there coming out of the break? What was that music we had just now? Yeah, I mean, Sam, what is it? Is it? Are you doing like some Bloomington Kirkwood stuff on us there? The bed is just a, a bed that's saved into the system. So I just, <laughs> I just click. It's uh, titled. I, I was, I was like. I thought we, I mean, we went deep into the KLF archives there for a minute. KLF, I was like, man, that's nice. I, it's long I love the KLF. Six. I just, I just play what's on the screen. KLF All right, just is going to rock you. I like. I that. love the KLF. I am a huge KLF fan. Come on, really? Oh yeah, huge, huge. If you've never read, if you've never read the book, the manual with by uh, the the lead singer of the KLF, the lead guy of the KLF. Where uh, they from? You, Where's KLF from? Uh, they're English. See, I was thinking they were like Norwegian. Yeah, Bill Drummond. There's a guy named Bill Drummond who is a, the genius behind the KLF, who basically they they told everybody you have to have no talent to have a top 10 hit, which is uh, 3M Eternal was their big hit. He basically proved that you could just make up this song, have a massive hit, and then they, they literally took a, a million pounds of their money and burned it on live television. Because they basically wanted to tell everybody that we just did this to prove that you can have no talent and, and become music stars. And, and they did. They burned. They sat in front of a furnace and they just took all their money and just kept throwing it into a furnace on television. I mean, wow. these the guys are fascinating to me. I love the KLF. Huge KLF wow. fan. <laughs> okay. I, I could tell you. I could do an entire show on the KLF, well, just so you know. I'll tell you what. Tomorrow we're going to do a show on Pernelli Jones. We'll mix KLF. KLF's going to rock you into it. Sound good, Mike? I love that. That would All be right. awesome if we could work the KLF into the The voice the of Mike Thompson. I'm Jake Query. Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, we'll do it again, Beyond the Bricks.